encourage you to turn there. And as we read it together, I want you to note three things. First, how many times does the psalmist describe physical, emotional, or mental symptoms? That's the first thing. Second, how many times do you hear him say something related to shame? Okay. And the third is, what does he try to do to counter these feelings? Okay. So those are the three things. Let's read together. Would you mind standing as we read God's word? This is holy and inspired, authoritative word. Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, I became, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O God, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me high. On high I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. 
This will please the Lord more than an ox or bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let earth and heaven praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm, a psalm that expresses what many people feel as they struggle with dishonor and shame. Father, I pray that we would be instructed by these things, that we would know that there are are those who have gone before us who feel the same things, including your son Jesus, that he has borne our shame and that we can turn to you for hope. And we thank you for all these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you read and listened, perhaps you filled up each of those three categories that I mentioned. I I first said to listen for physical, emotional, or mental symptoms, and perhaps you caught things like, I am sinking in deep water, verse 2. I am weary with my crying out, my throat is parched, verse 3. Mighty are those who would destroy me, verse 4, and many more. And then there was a category of things related to shame and You might have noted those who hate me without cause, verse 4. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, verse 6. Let not those be brought to dishonor through me, verse 6. Dishonor has covered my face, and I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Verse 8, I became a byword and a talk of those who sit in the gate, even drunkards make songs about me. You know that's bad when that happens. Verses 11 and 12. Verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. And then how does he try to counter these? He cries out to God, verse 3. He appeals to God's reputation, verse 7. To God's steadfast love, verse 13. He prays for God's presence and ransom, verse 18. He asks that God would avenge him against those who have shamed him, verses 22 to 25. But more than anything else, he commits to worshiping God no matter what, in verses 30 through 32. And I know that's a lot to process. That was a long psalm, longer than we've read at a time during our series. And I'm not asking you to put it all together right now. Instead, I want you to let some of these observations that you thought about, just discuss, to roll around a a bit at the back of your mind as we narrow our focus and try to understand a proper definition of shame. Now, I'll bring some of these back up again later. In Psalm 69, shame is associated with terms like dishonor, byword, and being the talk of those who sit in the gate. If we were to distill these down, shame for the psalmist was a deep and personal Sense that he was unacceptable because of something that others had done to him. His enemies took advantage of a weak moment and he felt helpless and humiliated, talked about, disrespected. And not only 
Was he concerned about his own reputation, but he was also, by extension, those around him concerned for them as well. And a few times he asks that the Lord would not let others to be shamed because of him. And mixed in with this shame over what others have done to him is shame that arises from his own sin. He admits to folly and wrongdoing in verse 5. And as we think about a definition for shame, we should distinguish it from embarrassment and from guilt. Embarrassment takes place when we feel self-conscious or awkward. And we typically use that term to describe that moment that quickly passes. Everyone has been embarrassed at some point before, and typically it just doesn't stay around very long. It doesn't certainly cling to us. If it does, that's usually when we move from the term embarrassment to shame. Guilt is accountability for having done something wrong. Guilt is measurable, it's objective, because it involves the breaking of some rule or law, and that's why we are guilty. And and guilt, like embarrassment, passes. It passes once we pay the penalty or suffer the consequence that's required, But, but shame goes beyond both of these, both embarrassment and guilt. It feels like a stain that you can't wash off and it makes you feel as if you are an outcast, a disgrace, a stranger to your own friends and family, that they must be talking about you or thinking something different about you. It's a, it's a painful, soul-stabbing sense of dishonor. Typically because what causes it in the first place, as one author describes, is that either you have acted less than human, you were treated as if you were less than human, or you were associated with something less than human, and people either know about it, or if they did, then they would think differently about you, or at least it sure painfully feels that way. And you can see that in Psalm 69. The psalmist is weary with crying. He's sinking in deep water and despair and feeling that even his own family no longer looks at him the same. And shame and her cousin regret are two of the most powerful negative instances and emotions that there are. And undoubtedly, there's at least one or two, perhaps, or more times in your life that you have experienced profound shame or regret. And because both of these occur in the past, there's nothing you can do to change what led to either one. And because shame in particular is so strong, whole societies use it to shape and control their cultures. Shame, for example, is a strong driving force in Asian cultures where the Possible shaming of your personal reputation or your family is a powerful motivator. It wasn't that long ago in American classrooms that you had the standing in corners and dunce caps. Shame can also be a powerful destroyer. Certainly still in in schools, you can see shame at work during recess when the kids line up and children get picked one by one. 
until there's the final person left to pick over which both teams groan because they got him. That ever happened to you? Did it build up your ego? Or did it leave you feeling ashamed and worthless? What does the Bible outside of Psalm 69 say about shame? Perhaps it's not surprising that it enters the biblical story right at the beginning of the Bible. In one of the key descriptions of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.25 as a couple is that they were naked and were not ashamed. So despite being vulnerable, being exposed, there was no shame. But then just seven verses later, we read, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And what we see in these verses are several elements that make up our understanding of shame. First, there was the knowledge or the feeling of exposure or vulnerability with a corresponding desire to cover and to hide. Adam and Eve, it says, knew that they were naked and they covered themselves. Second, there was the understanding that they were unclean. They had sinned and And that reality was made clear to them when God covers them through the sacrifice of animals a little bit later in verse 21. Third, there is a separation of relationship from others. In this case, from God, as we see in verse 24 in chapter 3. Because they're exiled from the Garden of Eden. And we might say then that shame which results from something that we have done or something that was done to us causes us to feel exposed, unclean, and separated from others. And it was right in this particular case for Adam and Eve to feel shame over their sin. And therefore there are times when shame is right or good but only when what causes shame is sin against God rather than failing to meet the expectations of other people. God actually uses shame to break us over our sin, and the church is called in wisdom and love to participate at times in that process. In 2 Thessalonians 3.13, Paul writes, As for you... Brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And the issue at Thessalonica was not that people weren't obeying Paul as a dictator, but rather that they weren't obeying the Lord. And what Paul wrote in his letters were the principles of Christ and of the gospel, and his admonition was for the church when it was necessary as part of the later stages of discipline that was unheeded 
to take public note of a person by having nothing to do with them. And obviously, it would have not been the beginning of a discipline process. The church was not to regard the man as an enemy, but as a brother. But it is key in verse 14 that it says that he may be ashamed. And so in this passage, we see these three elements that I mentioned a moment ago. We see exposure publicly. We see a sense of uncleanness from sin and a separation from both God and from his people. The intent, of course, was to give warning and ultimately to restore the individual. And you see with God in that process, and we'll cover this more in just a moment, that there is always the hope when we're talking about the Lord, there's always the hope of cleansing and restoration. But it's important to realize that shame always involves others. It always involves the community or the Lord. We are exposed. We are labeled unclean. We are separated from others, whether those be our family or friends or peer group, even the Lord. And sadly, when there is where there's hope of cleansing and restoration with God, there's usually only stigma within our social communities. And the worst shame of all is when that shame and stigma are caused by the actions of others towards us. This is the kind of shame that makes us feel the most helpless. Often we are the unwitting and certainly unwilling victims of the sin of others. It might be mistreatment from a spouse or a parent or peer or even a stranger. Enemies, like we have in Psalm 69, a hundred other variations. But what's important to realize is that our ties to that contaminating person or event, they aren't chains that we break with you know, heavy chain cutters. We can't just take a pair of scissors and cut away that moment or those events from our memory or our lives. They're they're deep, soul-changing issues that require spiritual solutions. But I do have good news for you. And that is, particularly for those who carry shame from things that others have done to you, there is something powerful enough to sever your connection to those people or to those events. If God can break the link between you and the devil, between you and death, he can certainly break any bonds that were established by the sin of a mere human being. And I have even greater news than that. If there is one thing that I have seen over and over again in the Bible, what is really a cohesive theme of all the scriptures is that it is that God loves the outcast and the lowly. For example, we read in Deuteronomy 7, 6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession. Out of all the nations, peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. 
For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And what you hear in this passage is God chose a people to be holy to be cleansed of their sin, to be cleansed of shame, to be set apart as his treasured possession. And it was not because they were some great nation, but because God chose to love them and committed himself to them. And he does the same to you. In fact, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and to himself become shame in your place. If you're trying to find cleansing and rehabilitation from shame in the love of a parent or a spouse or a child or a friend or a pet, these are all only temporary fixes. Besides trying to find your reputation in that person's acceptance is part of the problem, isn't it? And finding your self-worth in someone else's eyes and standards rather than the Lord's. No earthly person can cleanse you from shame and make you holy. Only God can do that. And here's how he does that. First, as I said, Jesus identifies with us in our shame. Perhaps as we read Psalm 69, there were verses where you said, I've heard that in the New Testament. Verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me as said in the Gospels to have been fulfilled when Jesus overturned the money changers' tables. Verse 21, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink is found in all four Gospels as it describes what the Romans did to Jesus as he hung upon the cross. And so even as the psalmist found himself dealing with shame, he was foreshadowing some of what Jesus would experience. The king of kings made himself nothing, of no reputation, of no impressive appearance that people should desire him. And he understands our weaknesses, but he also understands what it was like to have been misunderstood, to have been ridiculed, to have been spit upon, to have been falsely accused and cruelly treated. Second, God cleanses us and he doesn't stop there. He purifies us and he makes us holy. We are told that he makes his face to shine upon us and I can't help but think of the woman who likely felt some of the greatest shame in the scripture, that of the woman in Luke 7 the woman of ill repute who steps into the midst of a group of men, Pharisees no less, and washes Jesus' feet with her tears. That account just briefly is found in Luke 7, verse 36, where we read one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And so we have this woman who bursts into the house undoubtedly feeling great shame, wondering what would be said about her. 
After all, she walked into a room filled with the same men that avoided her every time they saw her on the street, perhaps made comments about her. And it had to have been a shocking moment for everyone. Simon the Pharisee host, he was not comfortable. Jesus wasn't reacting the way that he expected. Instead, Jesus gladly received the devotion the woman offered him. And you can see, and we'll talk about this more in just a second, how you have shame of the woman towards her peers in society. They just want to be rid of her. And you have shame for sin towards the Lord, but he turns with tenderness towards her. And he gladly receives the devotion that she offers him because he knew that her extraordinary gesture of love came from a heart that was overwhelmed by an awareness of her sin. She had come to him weeping over that sin, washed his feet with her tears of repentance, kissed Him with a heart of gratitude anoints him as an indication of love and response to his glad acceptance of her. Does that mean that her active devotion earned her forgiveness from Christ? No. Her washing and wiping and kissing and anointing of Jesus' feet came from a grateful heart, and Jesus delightedly accepted her gift. And so it was not a work to earn his love, but rather a response to his love. And so he accepts this woman. He accepts the one who had been shamed and rejected. And and he actually rebukes Simon for Simon's hypocrisy. Simon had any idea of the true nature of Christ and what his purpose was. He would have had his servants wash Jesus' feet. He would have washed Jesus' feet. In other words, and and please don't miss this, compared to the holy perfection of God, we are all cast into a shadow of shame from our sin. Yes, there are divisions in our society where people like the Simons of the world or those that sat in the gate of the city in Psalm 69 talk about others, make songs about them as if they... The talkers and the songwriters have not done what the psalmist has done to deserve such trouble. But when we, like the woman, realize the depth of our sin and the loving grace of God, how can we not be brought to our knees before him? And when we understand how Jesus identifies with our shame and even took on our shame, How can we not go to the one who both understands how we feel, but also offers the solution to make us whole and accepted? Maybe when I mentioned shame earlier, you couldn't think of a time that you felt ashamed before other people. But I hope even as we talk about Simon and this woman that that you realize what it means to have been ashamed over sin. 
But if God took an account of all of your sin, past, present, and in future, all your thoughts and words and deeds, sins of commission, sins of omission, everything you've done and not done, what if God, what if God sent you a bill every month? What would you owe him? Now compound that by realizing that every one of those acts and behaviors and thoughts and motives is a rebellious exalting of yourself above the holy and sovereign God and what he has called you to be and do. So what would your debt be? The good news is that God cleanses and restores the shamed. And why does God do this? The answer is love. Love as a father to his children. The Son of God became earth's mockery, became shame to save his children. The King of Kings laid aside his nobility and embraced humiliation to share his treasure with thankless souls. And at the end of that parable of Luke 7, Jesus says, in effect, to Simon, Simon, you may think that your debts are small and her debts are large. Some of you might feel that way. I'm not a big sinner. I'm a little sinner. I just have a little debt to to God. But that's enough to go to hell. Because either you pay the penalty for your sin in hell or the penalty was paid by Christ at the cross. Either way, a holy, just, good, righteous God well, he has justice for and against your sin. But in dying in your place for your sin, God proves himself to be loving and merciful and gracious and kind. And on the cross, all your debts are paid. And that's why Jesus says it's finished. And so the good news is that Jesus identifies with your shame. That he took on your shame. That he forgives your sin. And whatever else has brought about shame, God says, I can cleanse you. I purify you. I give you a new identity. Before shame was our identity. But as David, as David says in Psalm 69, I've become a stranger to my family, but in cleansing you of, of your shame, God gives you a new identity. That's why, especially in the letters of Revelation, so many of Jesus' promises to the churches center around things like new clothes and a new name and a new home. Previously, we allowed shame to become our identity, it so governed and shaped us and, and guided us and restricted us. But now the Lord gives us a new family. He adopts us. He gives us His righteousness. And I like these words in Psalm 34.4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. But you must look to the Lord. You must look to the Lord. 
So often in shame, we look down at ourselves. We look down at our situation, or we look to try to contain, control our situation. But it's when we look to him that our faces are radiant and they shall never be ashamed because God has accepted us. He has given us a place of honor and worth and even glory. And if that's the case, what should be our attitude within the body of Christ towards those who feel shame? Well, certainly we must not be like the Simons of the world, hypocritically thinking that we are ourselves without sin or somehow better situated than those who feel shame. It's far more comfortable to try to enhance our reputations and make everyone else think that we are something that we aren't. It's far less comfortable to be real about the fact that not only are we sinners, but we too have had our experiences. We've had our regrets. We too have been mistreated by others. Maybe not to the extent of others, but we've felt shame. And we know what it's like. And this must be a place where People's protective walls can safely be brought down where we can reveal these shameful experiences to one another because only then can the power of connecting through the Holy Spirit do its job. It must be made obvious to one another that beneath the surface, even of the person that seems the most together, There is an ongoing spiritual battle every day. And I think we all want to be a part of the kind of church and and community in which we are having deep, edifying conversations about the Lord, journeying through life with one another, yearning to be a family of brothers and sisters who are hungry for the things of God, who are intent not so much on trying to judge our worthiness or others' worthiness, but more on going with one another in this journey to know, to be known, to be a place with all of our experiences, many of the ones that caused us deep shame or regret or hurt, that this is a, this is a good place, this is the right place to share those and not feel that everybody else has their act together. Wants us to get with the program. People don't get uncomfortable when we talk about some of these messy things. Let's be the church. Not the church of the perfect System and perfect person and perfect set of rules. Don't want that. Because shame thrives in the midst of works, righteousness, and hypocrisy. Let's have a higher and a humbler vision that we are the broken and have been given a new identity by our Redeemer. 
who bore our shame. And the blood of his new covenant has made us pure and created an appetite for him that's stronger than everything else. We are the redeemed, the radiant faces that are no longer ashamed. And if you struggle with shame this morning, God doesn't want you to minimize it or to ignore it. He wants you to bring it to him. If it involves confession of sin, he wants you to confess it. If it involves bringing to him the shame of what others have done to you, he wants you to remember, as David writes in Psalm 69, that he is the God of steadfast love. He is your vindicator. He is a God of justice. He is a God of goodness. And he says, come to me and let me cleanse and purify and restore. Because the strength of what I have to give you and my firm commitment to you can make you be courageous and vulnerable. I'm thankful that Jesus not only bore my shame, but that it is not my competence, but my weakness that moves him to compassion. It's my sorrow over sin and my dependence and not my accomplishments and victories. And if I still think of others as the sinners and myself as good enough or vice versa, others as somehow good and me as the shamed and the outcast, whatever whichever end of that spectrum I fall on, then I need to remember that I'm using the wrong standards of measurement. It's not about me more than or less than someone else. My salvation is completely, 100% based upon God's unmerited favor towards me. I did nothing to earn it. I can do nothing to keep it. And shame begins to fade away in the reality of that perfect holiness and that perfect grace. And I pray that will be true of you. The more you realize that you've been forgiven, not only the greater will you love, but the more that reality will eclipse even the hurts and the regrets and the soul-stinging shames that you've experienced. I'll close with the final words of Psalm 69. As a psalmist is stating his commitment that in the face of all of these things, moments of despair, moments of feeling dishonored and disgraced and shamed, his commitment to turn his face to the Lord, to worship God, to remember his steadfast love, and he says this, when the humble see it, When they see my response, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, he says, as if he wants the rest of the people. Here he's been talking to his own soul. Now he wants the rest of you, the rest of us to hear. For the Lord hears the needy. Let your hearts revive. He does not despise his own people who are prisoners. 
Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. There's a great hope ahead of us, friends. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we read this psalm, as we think and meditate upon it, as we consider those who have been shamed in the scriptures, we think about our own lives and our own shameful experiences and regrets, and maybe even things that continue to cling and stain us today, Lord. We know that there's nothing on earth Not even the love of our spouse or children, they help. But nothing can truly purify us and cleanse us and restore us like your love. I pray that for anyone here who feels shame over the past, deep regret over the past, Lord, that you would help them to turn their face towards you the God of steadfast love. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.